0: Now, our first reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless: A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And the second reading is from one Timothy, chapter four verses one to six. "The spirit clearly says that in, time, in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed.
1: Search for the good life is nothing new, yes? The teacher, some thousands of years ago, was searching for the good life. There it is in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. I wanted to see what was good. Good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. He wanted to find the secret to the good life. And I imagine that pretty much all of us do as well. Yes? No one here wants to live a life that is is rubbish. A life that is a waste. A life that at the end you kind of go, well, I kind of missed the plot. We want to be able to tick that box and say... I lived a life that was a good life, a life that was worth living. And with the teacher, we've been exploring a whole range of different options. Power, work and money, relationships, and today, we're looking at pleasure. Now, pleasure is something that our society loves. Yes, but I don't think it's just our society. I think it is in the human heart to long for pleasure. A biblical phrase, but attributed to many others when you search on the net. The slogan, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm here not for a long time, but for a good time. And maybe when we think about pleasure, we think about those who go off the deep end and they live life hard. They get into all the stuff that us respectable people don't necessarily, but we're not talking about just that kind of pleasure. We're talking about the pleasure that we get of maybe sipping a nice two-fish coffee, uh, sitting on your porch, driving in your nice car, living in your nice house, the one time when your children have actually done what you've asked them to do, uh, and the house is tidy, you know, that sense of satisfaction of a job well done, of looking at that back lawn and going, I can't, I can't even see a weed. It's amazing. You know, the simple pleasures, the pleasures of maybe walking down the street in a foreign city and soaking up the culture, the pleasures of a, a good book, the pleasures of... Binge-watching your favourite TV drama or whatever it is. The pleasures of finally conquering that computer game and gaining legend status. We all seek pleasure. We all seek pleasure. I think in our society, this would be one of the most common paths that people walk to find meaning and purpose. And some do it thinking that pleasure is meaning. If I have a fun life, a pleasurable life, I have a meaningful life. But for others, and most of us who I think think about it a bit more deeply, maybe we use pleasure as a bit of an anaesthetic. We use pleasure to numb the pain. We use pleasure to block maybe the meaninglessness that we sense in life. But there's evidence that suggests that our Addiction with pleasure, and it is an addiction, is maybe backfiring. Hugh McKay, who's the Australian researcher, he says, I'm bored has become the agonised cry of a generation. The constant stimulation uh, creates a need for constant stimulation. We just need more. Think about the movies we grew up watching, for those of us who are old enough, As you think about what we were excited by then, Star Wars was little battleship models that were created. Now we have CGI, we have effects on a scale you could not comprehend back in the day. And they're getting bigger. And we've got 3D and we've got surround sound and now the seats are going to start to move and vibrate and do all sorts of things. It needs to be bigger and more. We're moving from watching to participating to virtual reality we need this constant stimulation this constant stimulation this he writes that the need for this constant buzz is like an addiction but the problem is like any addiction each time it takes a bit more to get the buzz Something that was ordinary now doesn't excite us anymore. It needs to be the next step. It needs to be the next step. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be better. To get that satisfaction, we need a bigger kick. Remember your first coffee, what the caffeine did to you? I reckon I could mainline caffeine and it wouldn't do anything to me anymore. I need a serious kick to get that caffeine fix. Why? because I've pushed on that button so many times. And it's the same. I think about the computer games that we grew up playing. Do you remember Pac-Man? Do you remember how amazing Pac-Man was? Does it cut it? Could you convince the kids of today that Pac-Man is the greatest thing? It was. still is. But... The psychiatrists and psychologists they've actually noted that there is a tendency for the ability for our experience, our experience, our ability to experience pleasure, is actually being robbed from us. That the more we press on that pleasure button, the harder it is to get the kick. And it's actually got a name. It's called anhedonia a lack of an ability to get pleasure from the simple things. So is there a way for us to get pleasure? Is there a way that pleasure can actually be part of our life in a way that is meaningful? Or is it like the other things that we've looked at, a bit of a dead end perhaps? Three headings this morning. Here they are. Number one, they're on your notes. The pursuit of pleasure. Number two, the party to end all parties. And number three... Pleasure redeemed. So the pursuit of pleasure. The teacher goes on an exploration. He goes on prac. He says to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And what Anne read for us is the list of where he went to. So if you pick up your Bibles, look at verse two. Where does he start? Laughter, I said, is madness. I tried, verse 3, cheering myself with wine. Okay, he's gone from comedy, from humor to alcohol. Okay, let's keep on going. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses. Note, he didn't build a house. He built houses. He planted vineyards, not a vineyard, but many of them. He made gardens and parks and planted them in all sorts of fruit trees from them. He made reservoirs of water to water the groves of flourishing trees. He's building his own personal garden of Eden. And if you read down the bottom in verse 10, he denies himself nothing his eyes desired. There are no forbidden trees. There are no, don't touch that tree. In his little garden, everything is permissible. He goes on. Okay, Uh, verse uh, seven. I had male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. He acquires a workforce. He owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He builds wealth. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. This guy has gone He's loaded. He acquired male and female singers. Well, back in the day, they didn't have MP3s. You couldn't subscribe to Apple Music. Music was a luxury. And he's got his own choir. Gets better. A harem as well. Okay. Let the reader understand. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He's famous Where does he go? Laughter, wine, construction, acquisition, wealth, music, sex, fame. If he lived today, he would say, you know, television, computer games, maybe even the illicit substances. He'd go out and he went hard and he went to explore, does pleasure deliver meaning? No one could say, that he didn't try hard enough. No one could accuse this guy of, you know, just paddling on the edge. He jumps in wholeheartedly and plums the depths of pleasure. And you might have been surprised that in verse 10, he doesn't come up with the conclusion that you might have expected. I denied myself nothing, my eyes desired, I refused my heart no pleasure my heart took delight in my labour. So are we, are we left thinking that perhaps this is the way? My heart took delight. Now we need to think about this. Some people think about the Christian faith as, uh, as a bunch of wowsers, really. No fun. If you're smiling, it's sinful. If you're enjoying it, it's definitely sinful. If you desire it, it's addictive, so stay away from it. People think of Christianity, they think of it in terms of what you can't do. All the rules and basically, yep, take all the fun out of life. If I was to become a Christian, my life would be boring. I've heard that said before. And can I say, sometimes Christians have been reacting against abuses, And so because of the abuse and the ravages of alcohol within the poor communities of London, the Salvation Army set up a no-alcohol policy. We look at that and go, oh, you know, I love a glass of red. They are reacting to the abuses and the damage that it brings. Maybe they didn't react in quite the right way, but we can understand if we put ourselves in their shoes... But does the Bible actually say, don't drink? No, it actually doesn't. Psalm 104, talking about God. He makes the grass grow for the cattle, plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts. God made wine to gladden our hearts. Oil to make your faces shine. So I hope you've rubbed the oil in this morning. Bread that sustains their hearts. Wine is a good thing. It's a a gift from God to gladden human hearts. When you think about the Garden of Eden, it's described not in spiritual terms. It is incredibly earthy and phenomenally beautiful in a material sense, isn't it? The delight that Adam expresses as he sees his newly created and not yet clothed wife. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Wow! Physical delight. Canaan is described to Israel as a land of milk and honey. A land of abundance, of material blessing. We've got to get out of our head that if it's fun, it's bad. Material, bad, spiritual, good, that's actually Buddhism. It's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. He got delight out of some of these things. We could argue that he possibly misused them. Yes, but we don't want to say that in and of themselves, all those things were wrong. It's not wrong to have a house. It's not wrong to have sex. It's not wrong to drink a glass of wine. It's not wrong to undertake projects. Those things are good things, but all of them, as we know, can become idols. So is it all that bad? Well, no. But yes. Look at his conclusion. Classic Ecclesiastes, he gives it right up front. He doesn't want to lull us into a false sense of security. I said to myself in verse 1, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Gives us the answer, but that also proved to be Hevel, meaningless, transient, didn't last, no substance. Verse 11, When I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was Hevel. And in case you didn't get it, a chasing after wind doesn't work. Nothing was gained under the sun. His point is that pleasure, even though it gives a passing buzz, it does not last. It always leaves us with a sense of wanting more. Yes, as you've had that glass of wine and you look at the bottle and it's empty You're like, oh. Or you get to the bottom of that beautiful cup of coffee. Or the clouds come across the sun. Or the symphony ends. And you kind of go, oh. That moment of victory, that moment of achievement. Oh. It goes. C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant essay. You can find it online, it's worth reading. It's called The Weight of Glory. He says, we remain conscious of a desire that no natural happiness will satisfy. As we experience pleasure and then the letdown afterwards, we long for something more. It never really satisfies. And that's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. The best we can hope for is an an anesthetic. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. When God gives... Someone, wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them. Note, they don't always go together. To accept their lot and be happy with their toil. This is a gift from God. What does it achieve? Not lasting meaning. They seldom reflect on their days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. It's a distraction. It's kind of like, look at the picture while I stab you with the needle here, have a jelly bean, isn't that great? Makes it all better. And one gets the sense that the teacher in Ecclesiastes didn't fall for this one. He didn't see the distraction delivered. Our filling or wanting to fill this hole is like trying to fill a chasm with a thimble with a hole in the bottom. We can never get anywhere close to that lasting satisfaction. There is no limit to our craving. As Lewis says, we remain aware of a need that no earthly pleasure can satisfy. We catch catch glimpses of it, don't we? Maybe you get your test results back and you've scored really well. Yeah, wow. But the next day it's gone. That ecstasy of getting that performance right. You've, you've nailed the piano piece or the violin piece or the vocal piece. You've just, you've scored that ultimate goal. Curled it in over the goalie's head. Yes! And then it's gone. The awe of beauty, beauty the wonder of music, the thrill of victory. Just glimpses. Just glimpses. But we keep going back there, hoping that this time it will stay, this time it will be real. This time the chasm will be filled. Lewis goes on, he says, "'We are half-hearted creatures, "'fooling about with drink and sex and ambition "'when infinite joy is offered us, "'like an ignorant child who wants to go on "'making mud pies in a slum.'" Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Lewis's point is not that we, not that we want too much; we actually don't want enough. We think that our cars and our coffees and our victories at work or on the sporting field or on the computer game or the wonderful TV drama that's laid out before us on our panoramic screens, we think that that is it. Lewis says, you half-hearted creatures. Brothers and sisters, is there a way for us to move beyond the mud pies in the slum? to become wholehearted creatures, longing and having that longing filled. Well, yes, there is a party to end all parties. The Bible teaches us that earthly pleasures are just an appetizer. Just an appetizer, just a glimpse of something that is so much more. Lewis, again... He says, for a few minutes, we have the illusion of belonging to that world. You know, that moment of, yes. Now we wake up to find that it's no such thing. We have been mere spectators. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face was turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed or taken into the dance. We've been spectators, he writes. We've glimpsed another world where we don't belong, but can we belong? We look at the short, the two and a half minutes, and we think that this is the movie. We look at the, we smell the barbecue. You know, you get that waft down the hall and the digestive juices are going, and we think that that is the meal. We think that the overture is the entire symphony There is more. The Bible speaks of this party to end all parties. Isaiah 25, the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. If you're a veggie or a vegan, put it in your own thing, you know, finest artichoke, whatever that is. But here we have a material blessing, the best of meats, the finest of wines, a celebration on the mountain of the Lord, not wafting around playing harps on a cloud. It's a party to end all parties. And Jesus picks this up. He picks it up on a number of occasions in parables where he speaks of heaven as a banquet. Matthew 22, he gives us heaven as an, Im- an image of a wedding feast for the son of the king. An image of extravagance where the original guests have turned up their nose, they're too busy, they've got other things on and they get rejected. You can read that story in Matthew 22. But everyone then, the doors are thrown open to everyone else and we are invited in to a celebration of the wedding of the king's son. An amazing privilege. But the focus isn't on the party, the focus is on the one that we are celebrating. The focus is on the one that we are celebrating. Isaiah 25 again. This party on the mountain of the Lord, surely this is our God. Not, wow, what an incredible meal. But this is our God. What an incredible God. We trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. This is the Lord. They're not delighting in the meal. The meal is just a vehicle for expressing that delight in God. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. But if you know the story in Matthew, this heavenly party, this party to end all parties doesn't end well for one person in particular. Verse 11. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. Doesn't end well for him, does he? That glimpse taken. There is a guest that doesn't belong, one that doesn't fit, one who is not accepted, that does not belong. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, which one are we? That's us. We do not belong in the heavenly banquet. By our own rights, we don't stand there and go, yes, I've been invited because I belong. Why? Because at the heart of it, we, like the original invitees, have rejected the invitation. We put everything else before the God who invites us to his son's party. But we want it, don't we? We want to be there. How do we there? We need the robes. We need the wedding clothes, don't we? Now, if you go back into your books, you'll find out that these were actually a gift that was given by the host to the guests. So you didn't have to go out and buy yourself a nice new frock. You turned up and you were presented with the wedding clothes, a free gift of the host. What is the free gift that means that we can sit at the wedding feast of the king's son? What is the robe? Well, brothers and sisters, we have an invitation. It has been written in blood. Our rejection has been dealt with by the rejection of the Lord Jesus Jesus stood in our place and bore the consequence of our rejecting God. He was cast out so that we might be welcomed in. He was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in his robe. He cried out in thirst so that we might be satisfied. He experienced ultimate pain so that we might experience ultimate pleasure. This is the invitation. This is the invitation into the world that we glimpse in our pleasures. The invitation to where ultimate pleasure is bestowed. Heaven is a party. But like any party, it's not about the party, it's about the host, isn't it? It's about the one who's invited us and this one has invited us at the very cost of his son. He's given us Christ and so given off himself. And so Jesus says, my father is your father. Jesus calls us his friends. The spirit lives within us. He gives us himself. Brothers and sisters, ultimate pleasure is not found in the stuff that he blesses us with. But ultimate pleasure is found in the one who blesses us. Think about it. For some of you, you will have had this experience. You've, um, you've maybe asked a, a nice young lady to marry you. Okay, You've given her a ring, probably as much as you could afford, if not more. Okay, imagine if she then started just going on about how wonderful the ring was and how beautiful it made her hand look and how, you know, all the things about her and lost the fact that you'd actually given it to her. You'd be kind of thinking, how does this work? You're getting hung up on the gift when I've actually promised. That's a sign that I have promised to give you my entire self. Augustine says it like this. He says, it's easy to want things from God and not want God himself as though the gift could ever be preferable to the giver. Brothers and sisters, where do we look for ultimate pleasure? We look hopefully to the giver and not to the gift. We look to the fact that we have a father who delights in us and we rest in that relationship, in the love that he has for us. We are his and he is ours. Is that not the ultimate pleasure? And what will heaven be? Yes, it will will be a material blessing, but ultimately we will be with him. And we will see him face to face. And that is that highest pleasure, the greatest good. Let us be wholehearted people. But for some of us, that experience of God seems so far away. Let me think about that with you for a second. I think one of the problems is we live in a world that is crammed full of distractions. I read about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had some incredible encounters with God where he was both at the same time overwhelmed with the incredible love of God and his holiness. He was both brought down with his sinfulness and raised up at how much God would love him. These experiences happened when he was meditating as he rode his horse from town to town, didn't have the car radio on, didn't have the iPod plugged in, didn't have the emails coming in, or the things coming into every part of his life. I wonder whether, brothers and sisters, we live in a world of distraction and we run ourselves at such a rate that when we sit still, we can't sit still. Do you feel that? That our brains don't stop And when we sit there and we try and pray, we are filled with every other thought about everything else because we actually are not in the habit of stopping. Sometimes I think we don't experience delight in God because we try and cram him in to a chaotic schedule. Well, think back. Think back if you've ever dated someone. Husbands and wives can get into bad habits. Let's not go there but you really love this person and you really want to show how much you love this person, you spend time with them. One of the greatest tragedies I think I've seen is, you know, the the cafe date where they're there both on their phones or they're both, you know, tweeting about how I'm having a date with my boyfriend or my girlfriend and this one I'm eating, but they're missing it. I wonder, brothers and sisters, whether we miss God because we try and fit him in around the edges. But sometimes, also, our emotions shape our experience and some of us find it easier to see the down than the up, to see the dark but not the light. Sometimes we wrestle with our situation and we feel that God is distant. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you To work with what you know rather than what you feel. To know that God loves you. To know that God has given you Christ. To know that he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. To know that you are his and no one, nothing can stand between you and him. We may feel that God is distant. But that is so much our human frailty. And not his coming and going, his fickleness. No, our God is a rock. Go with what we know, not with our what we feel. And lastly, as we think about as we think about how God, through the gospel, has given us Himself, what it does is it liberates every other pleasure. We are no longer slaves, slaves to seek ultimate satisfaction through our coffee, through the beauty of the sunrise, through all these things. We see them as good gifts from our loving Father. They are not the ultimate thing. Pleasure is a gift. And because we have the ultimate, that gift is, is seen clearly as the gift of our loving Father. Pleasures are put in their place. We don't look for them to ultimately satisfy. We were made for God. Our rest, our joy, our delight are found in Him. And as we enjoy the other things, we have this added dimension that we know they are a gift from our Heavenly Father, a token of His love for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask. We ask that you would show us the wonder of your love for us. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I ask that you would show us more of yourself. Help us to know you, not just stuff about you. Help us to rejoice in you, not just the things you do for us, the things you give to us, but help us to rejoice in you. Father, we are sorry for when we seek the things you give and not the one who gives them. When we seek satisfaction in things that can never satisfy. Father, we thank you for the lesson from the teacher. Father, we thank you for the brutal clarity of seeing just how empty it is to find meaning and purpose in these things. But then you let us see that in their right place, they are a blessing, they are good because you have given us yourself and you are the best. Father, we pray that you would show us more of yourself and delight us, delight us in you. And in Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen.